Hi, this is Pastor Ben Fagelin from Bright Church. I'm so glad you're listening to this podcast. I hope this message inspires you, deepens your relationship with God, and that you're encouraged in your faith. We hope to see you soon at Bright. As far as uh, an organization goes, Open Doors, we help people follow Jesus all over the world, no matter the cost. We've been doing it for more than 60 years, and the way we work, although at a little bit different, we go to the most difficult places first. So whether that be North Korea, Afghanistan, Somalia, Iraq, Syria, those kind of places, wherever Christianity kind of bumps heads with governments or religions and there's a fallout, we work. But unlike other charities, we don't actually exist to end the cause for which we serve. (laughs) It's not a bad thing, I guess, in the, you know, make poverty history, all these kind of things. There's a desperate desire to end the cause for which they serve. But for Open Doors, we would say that persecution, it's a hallmark of successful Christianity. In fact, wherever the gospel is being shared, persecution exists. Our job is not to end it. It's not even to stop it growing. It's to give people the strength to stand in the face of it and shine as brightly as they can. And so by your generosity and your investment into the work of Open Doors, in many ways you're prolonging suffering, but in the best of possible ways. Because we would say that the worldwide institutional local church is the indisputable heavyweight of the world when it comes to hope, aid, justice, safety, and relief. And a well-functioning church, it reaches far beyond the four walls of Christianity and it bleeds into community, always sharing the love of Jesus. And so that's what we do as an organisation. We help the church remain in some of the most conflicted countries on the planet. The investment you're making, it helps people, whether we smuggle Bibles, Bible training, it helps with discipleship and practical support of leaders and people, men, women, children. It helps practically through micro business loans and all sorts of different tools. But across the 70 countries that we work in, the work looks vastly different. The work in North Korea looks different to Middle East and the Middle East looks different to South Asia and India and Pakistan and places like that. But what I can promise you is that by investing into the work of Open Doors, you're helping the gospel advance all over the world no matter the cost. But what I love about our ministry that is if I look forward over the next two decades... Some of the most important work we have before us is right here in Australia. Because all I need to do is look around and see the rapidly changing freedoms of religion within our society, the changing nature around sex and sexuality that sort of compresses and forces in on spirituality. And never before has it been more important to help people follow Jesus all over the world, no matter the cost. We would be wise to stop measuring our proximity to God based on His provision of safety. Have you thought about that? I say to myself, hey, my spiritual life is going well. My faith with Jesus is going well when things are going well. But the moment that changes, the first thing I do is I question, well, where's God? In fact, I've seen a lot of Christians survive persecution, but very few prosperity. All over the world, people in the face of persecution find the courage to follow Jesus. I mean, which is a greater danger to your faith, ISIS or an iPhone? Because I see one of them driving people to God and I see one of them drawing them away from Him. And it's a subtlety of distraction that's suffocating our faith, whereas the pressure of persecution, it brings it to life. Ben was talking about there being one body of Christ. I remember, and I told this story in the first service, 
But I remember being in Iraq at the height of the war with ISIS. There were people arriving into the city that I was in, men, women, children, all on foot, people sleeping in the gutters and abandoned buildings and courtyards of churches, you name it. Anywhere there was space, there were people. I remember meeting with one grandfather who was just literally carrying a pillow and his story was that ISIS came in the middle of the night, forced him to leave and he was so kind of unnerved by it and so bewildered that he just picked up the only thing that was near him was a pillow and he'd walk for several days to this city that I was now in. But as we're standing there, I was in a refugee camp, five and a half thousand people. Whenever you're in those kind of war zones, you always need to be mindful of your surroundings, thinking about exits, how do you get out of here if something happens, something changes. Out of the corner of my eye, I saw a guy walking towards me with real purpose and conviction. I thought to myself, this could get interesting. And anyway, he gets up in my face and he starts talking to me in broken English and asks me, hey, I hear you're from Australia. I said, yeah, I am. And he says, I want you to know our church. We pray for you. What? And, he, and anyway, we land on the Lint Cafe siege from several years ago in Sydney. And he says, when that happened, our church, we stopped and we prayed for you. I remember thinking to myself, man, don't put that on me. And he says, well, in the West, you look at the body of Christ as arms, legs, fingers and toes. But he says, we look at it as blood, bones, muscle and skin. He says, the bones, they're like the Catholics. They're rigid and you can't move them. But he says, you take them away from the body and the body can't stand. It falls to the ground. And he says, Mike, mind you, over here when they're dying at the hands of ISIS, they're not dying because they don't deny Mary. They're dying because they don't deny Jesus. He says, the muscles, they're like the Anglicans. They're quite rigid, but you can move them a little bit. He says, the blood, they're like the Pentecostals, the charismatic, free-flowing and always changing. But he says, you take away any one of those elements and the body can't stand. And he says, like a body fighting off wound or infection, blood flow increases, muscles contract, and other parts of the body rush to that area to protect it. He said, right now, the body of Christ in Iraq is hurting and we are rushing to protect it. For me, it was the moment, the distinct moment, only a few years ago, that I realized I'm in the body, but the question is, was I in the fight? Because for me, it's as though I see there's one little body of Christ in Australia, one in the Middle East, one in America. One, no, 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 there's one body of Christ. We're all in it. And more than that, all over the world it's hurting. The question is, are we in the fight? Because the longer we measure our proximity to God based off his provision of safety, the longer we keep walking in circles. Is one of the reasons why, and I know Ben might touch on it a bit later, when we talk about how to support our ministry, yeah, we're a normal charity, right? We ask for your financial support. But again, we even do that a little bit different because we ask people to match a monthly subscription in their life to the work of Open Doors. Spotify, Netflix, mobile phone, internet, pay TV. You see, we find all this margin for those things in our lives. But what will it take to find something for the church, the global body of Christ? Because it's actually not about the money. As I said, I've seen so many people survive persecution, but very few prosperity. And isn't it funny when if everyone in this room claims to be a follower of Jesus, the moment I ask you to match a monthly subscription in your life, we think, oh no, I couldn't push out Spotify. I couldn't put it out Netflix. Sometimes I have a sneaking suspicion that comfort has more of us than Christ does. And so our wrestle and our challenge is to say that both and, what are you willing to give up for the global body of Christ? Because giving it's never about how much you give it's about how much you keep have you ever thought about that yeah, wow. That's good. 
And so that's our challenge often is to say, hey, we want you to match a subscription. Even one coffee a week, I thought to myself in Sydney, anyway, actually Melbourne prices, is $20 a month, right? <laughs> one coffee a week, not a day. One coffee a week. But $20 a month, and even the sacrifice your church makes for the persecuted church, that dollar, it stretches so much further in a place like Iraq or Syria. We think it's not much, but together a small sacrifice from many makes a massive difference for the global body of Christ. And so I want to thank you on behalf of people you will never meet for your generosity in investing into the work of Open Doors. We desperately need your help because all over the world, culture is continuing to press in on Jesus and never before has it been more important to equip people to stand in the face of persecution and shine for Jesus. It's what I love about our work is that rather than just asking you to invest into them like a one-sided charity, they invest into you. Because remember, there's one body of Christ and they're people who have overcome the villain of cultural pressure, the comfort of materialism and wealth to remain courageously close to Jesus. One thing I'm passionate about is saying that persecution and wealth can coexist. I think often people have a poverty mentality when it comes to authentic relationship with Jesus. You can only be poor and authentically close to Jesus. That's untrue. Persecution and wealth can coexist. What matters is can Jesus be seen or heard in your life? And so I think that's a crucial message for the Western church is that it's not that people look at us saying, hey, you're rich and you're fat and comfortable. No, no, no. It's not a poverty mentality we're chasing. We need to be chasing more of Jesus. And so this morning what I want to do is hopefully give you one of those kind of mentoring sessions from the persecuted church to show you why I believe Open Doors matters because when you invest into them, my hope is today we can all leave bigger, badder and stronger in our faith knowing what it means to truly and courageously follow Jesus. And to do that, I want to frame it up around the topic of purpose and start by asking you a question. You've ever questioned God's purpose for your life? It might be for your job, for your um, family, for any challenges you face. Because I know I have. And more than that, I do it often. Just recently, I had wanted to bring a couple of people from the persecuted church out to Australia to speak. I supplied 60 um, supporting documentations to the government, I believed it was going to happen. I mean, I truly believed it. I told the team from Open Doors, we don't give up until the events are on because I believe that God has a purpose and a plan for them being here. But it was those last few words that undid me because there is a very fine line between me trying to manufacture and manipulate a God purpose versus trusting in His purpose. And so what I want to do this morning is take you on a journey that I've walked in better understanding purpose. Because the reality is, although purpose, it may be manifest in the great moments in our life, I'll tell you what, it is built in the small ones. But I want to start by telling you where my story of purpose began. In this letter on the next screen, it talks about being abandoned at birth as a uh, destitute, well, by a destitute woman in India. See, I, whereas an unwed destitute woman, gave birth to a male child, being me, on the 21st of January, 81, abandoned the said child at the maternity wing of the St. Mary's Convent, Bangalore, India. Left the child at the maternity wing without giving any clues of her whereabouts, and whereas since then the child has been in the care of this orphanage. That's where my story began. Born as a Hindu, abandoned at birth by a destitute woman, unable to be adopted within the caste system 
because within Hinduism they believe whatever you've done in your previous life determines the circumstances amidst which you were born. Now in 1977, a family in Australia, they applied for an adoption. They had two biological daughters of their own. They heard a lot of bureaucracy, a lot of red tape, but nothing conclusive. In fact, in 1981, they decided on giving up on an adoption. They spent the money they had saved on a trip to America with their two daughters as a way of closing the chapter and moving on in life. Anyway, while this was happening, a lady in the orphanage took a liking to me. One night, she grabbed me and she smuggled me across a straight state line. She bribed some nuns with cash to say that I was dumped on their doorstep. It allowed them to change my birth certificate and I could be adopted under a different state's law. This family got back from their holiday. They got a phone call saying the adoption's gone through and your son will be at the airport at the weekend. <laughs> now they're a Christian family. I'm not sure how Christian the household felt that night. But I do know they prayed about it. The next day, my mum was driving a car with her two daughters in it. She had a car crash, wrote the car off without a scratch or a bruise to anyone in the car. And then she said to me, Mike, what was the miracle? Was it two days later, the day before you arrived at the airport? The insurance money had been returned to her bank account and it was to the exact dollar that was needed to pay for the adoption. Not a dollar more and not a dollar less. That's where God's story of purpose began in my life. But one thing I want to be very clear about is there is no hierarchy in testimony. We live in a world that glorifies the story often over God's purpose in the story. Whether you grew up in a Christian home and had a relatively uneventful life, whether you grew up like me with a relatively elaborate story, the reality is there's no hierarchy in testimony. Don't ever let anyone place a hierarchy between you and their story because the truth of it is, no matter how you grew up, it's God's story. There is no hierarchy in testimony. Oh, before we move on, I said this in the first service. I run all my talks by the team in Sydney and uh, at the end of the time when I ran it by them, they said to me, hey, yeah, the one thing you didn't do was say, like, that's you on the slide. I'm like, I just talked about adoption. India, baby, pretty sure they get it. And uh, they're like, well, we didn't. I'm like, okay. So anyway, if you haven't figured it out, that's me uh, as a baby, yep. Um, And in the top right, uh, my shoes, the shoes that I was wearing when I arrived in Australia and some of the only possessions I'd actually have and memories of my childhood. But today, whether you're in a season of questioning purpose, needing encouragement, hope, overcoming fear, or even if you're here not knowing God, then you know what I believe, that number one, looking back, there was a purpose that the speakers didn't arrive in Australia. And number two, I believe more than that, that there's a purpose that you're here today. The main part of my talk today is that I want to talk about Central Asia. It's a part of the world that I love. It's a part of the world uh, where the countries of the Stans, for those of you who are wondering where Central Asia is, Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Afghanistan. It's like the Silk Road between China and the Middle East. It's called Central Asia. It's an incredibly beautiful part of the world. And in my 10 years serving the persecuted church, I've had the great privilege of smuggling Bibles into North Africa. In fact, tonight, if you want to come back, it's a different message, full of stories, smuggling, miracles, crazy stuff. So bring friends, because if you want to hear sort of those sort of hero stories from the persecuted church, I'll be telling a few of those tonight. So I've smuggled Bibles into North Africa. I've met with the underground church of China. I've been in the middle of war zones in Syria and Iraq. But part of the world that I've loved the absolute most is Central Asia. Regularly chased by the secret police, it's a land of complexity and beauty. 
where the sort of remnants of communism, they collide with the rise of radical Islam and they make faith really difficult. But in the middle of that, there is a church that is just booming and growing. People coming to faith in Jesus through dreams and visions. Miracles happening every day of the week. It's a book of Acts church. And it's been an incredible privilege to see it. The lessons that I want to share with you this morning, they come from a time in Central Asia spent with one man, this man. His name is Ozod. When he was 10, he began drinking heavily. When he was 11, smoking marijuana. As an adult, he became one of the most renowned jewelers in his region, the wealth of which only fueled his addiction to both drugs and alcohol. In fact, as customary within the Islamic culture of Central Asia, at 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon, he would beat the demons out of his wife. I remember sitting in their house having dinner together, and his wife told me how she lived for 13 years with blue eyes. When I think of transformations or radical transformations, I often think of Saul to Paul. Well, you know what? Ozod's is no different. He has now become one of the most instrumental men of faith in that entire region. In fact, so much so that the KGB have bought the apartment next door to his as a way of monitoring what he does next. As I was sitting in his house having dinner, he says to me, Mike, if anyone comes in, just say you're our friends because you can't get in trouble for having dinner with your friends. And in what is a beautiful completion to the story, his wife is right alongside him in ministry, serving the Lord faithfully and seeing the kingdom of God grow in their nation. Earlier this year, I was sitting in the church with Ozod, a church of which he's the senior pastor. I've been there several times before, and as the service progressed, I realized he wasn't leading the service. In his country, it's illegal to teach the gospel to anyone under the age of 16. Think about how effective that is as suppressing the growth of the church. Parents are nervous about bringing children to church. In fact, if you're caught with a coloring sheet with a Bible scripture on it, you can be charged with religious extremism and sent to jail for three years. And so as the service progresses, Ozod wasn't leading the service. The last two times I'd been there, he had been. So I thought it was a bit strange. After the worship, everyone was asked to stand. The kids stood and Ozod led them out. I remember I thought that was strange. I must ask him about that later. And as I was talking to him later, he says to me, Mike, it's easy to become a master when you're a servant. But to become a servant when you're a master, it's almost impossible. He said, what make Jesus so beautiful? He said, I've stepped down from running the church to run the kids' ministry. Because if anyone's going to go to jail, it's me. He pointed to a child and he says, in the West, Mike, you look at kids' ministry as a glorified babysitting service. But he says, for me, it is the single most important investment I can make into the future of faith in our nation. And I'll go to jail for it every day of the week. So my encouragement to you today is if you're involved in children's ministry, don't ever look at it as though we're a placeholder. We are at one of the most important inflection points of faith in our nation, in the history of our nation. And kids' ministry, it is the single most important investment we can make into the future of faith in our nation. And Nozod would go to jail for it every day of the week. So I hope that's an encouragement to you if you're involved in kids' ministry, if you're parents with children. Don't ever look at them as something less. Man, the future of faith rests on their shoulders and it's our job to build it. As our time drew together, 
uh, drew to a close, my conversation with Ozoda turned towards the concept of purpose. And from a man who's handed over the running of his church to run kids' ministry, a man who is so confident and comfortable with his purpose, whether that ends as a free man or in prison, I had a sneaking suspicion that the next few minutes were going to change my life. And this morning I want to share two of the lessons he taught me about purpose with you. The first of those is the power of proximity. One of the things I love about the persecuted church is their love for the Scriptures, the Word of God. Ozod says to me, reading his Bible is his opportunity to walk hand in hand with God himself through the Garden of Eden. What a beautiful picture of reading the Bible. He said, Mike, when was the last time you read the Bible when you weren't preparing a sermon? Because for these guys, they realize that the words that are on these pages, they're life to those who find salvation As I was sitting with Ozod, he pointed me to the story of Jesus healing the demon-possessed man, as illustrated on the slide behind me. There's a story in Mark 5, a story and that I'm sure we all know well. Jesus, he was traveling to the region of the Ten Towns. It's greeted by a man who lives in the burial caves, a man that is so violent, chains no longer restrained him. The Bible says no one was strong enough to subdue him. Day and night he wandered among the burial caves in the hills, howling and cutting himself with sharp stones. And what a terrifying picture of someone living in your neighborhood. When Jesus was still some distance off, the man came running towards him. He fell at his feet and he begged the Lord not to torture him. And we know the rest of the story, right? Jesus casts out the legion of demons into a herd of pigs standing nearby. The pigs run down the hill and they drown themselves in the river. What I didn't realize, though, is what happened next. Because the man who was formerly demon-possessed, he went with Jesus and said, hey, can I get in the boat? Can I go with you? Jesus says, no, 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 you can't go with me. He says, I want you to stay here and I want you to tell your story in the region of the Ten Towns. A seemingly kind of innocent request and in retrospect, in my view, not a bad request. But Jesus' response was, no, no, you don't get to come with me. You need to stay. But why is this so important? Ozod said to me, the reason is, Mike, that your story, it is most powerful to those who know you best. Had the man got into the boat and gone to the other side of the lake with Jesus, then he said people would have known of him. Man, we've heard about you. You were that guy? But he says, by staying in the ten towns, the region where everyone truly knew him, when they saw the transformation, they were like, what happened to you? You used to be the guy from the burial. I mean, I know you. What happened to you? Your story, it is most powerful to those who know you best. Ozod smiled and said to me, Mike, now come with me to Mark 8. And so I flicked through the couple of pages between 5 and 8 and and I was eager to see what he's going to show me. And when I get there, it's a story of Jesus feeding the 4,000. Ozod said to me, Mike, why were the 4,000 there? I sort of searched through the scriptures, flailing around looking for an answer. And he steps in to save me. He says, Mike... You read the Bible compartmentalized chapters and verses, but he says that was all stuff added later. We read it as a flowing narrative. He says, jump back with me to Mark 7 and verse 31. And so I I took my eyes back to 31 and it says, Jesus returning to the region of the 10 towns. 
Ozod said to me, Mike, the 4,000 were there because the demon-possessed man stayed and told his story to the region of the 10 towns. Your story has most power to those who know you best. He said it would have been far easier for the man to get into the boat than face the shame, the resentment, the embarrassment of having to stand before those who knew him for so long as the man in those caves. Ozod paused and looked at me and says, So Mike, let me ask you, have you got into the boat and gone to the other side of the lake with Jesus? Or have you stayed and told your story in the region of the ten towns? On the other side of the lake, it's comfortable. It's safe to tell your story. You can hide behind the fact of who you were and just talk about who you are. But in the region of the ten towns, you need to look fear, embarrassment and awkwardness. You need to look your past directly in the face. And show people that know you best the transformation that only Jesus brings. And you know what? He's right. In many ways, I have simply got into the boat and gone to the other side of the lake with Jesus, where it's safe, where it's comfortable to tell my story. I'm rarely in contact with people from my childhood, from my school days, from my non-Christian working life. And in the moments that I am, how often do I speak about Jesus? I'm happy to tell you all about my adoption, but where was Jesus in that story? I'm happy to talk to you about moralistic change I once did bad things and now I don't I'm happy to tell you about materialistic change I once had nothing and now I have something I'm even happy to tell you about emotional change I once was sad but now I'm happy but when do I talk to you about spiritual change Ozod said to me Mike to leave Jesus out of your language only ever paves the wide road to hell with generosity and kindness The simplicity of the gospel is being able to articulate who Jesus is and what he's done in your life. In fact, coming back from this trip, the first thing I asked our team to do was to take four hours out of work time and write a paragraph down on who Jesus is to you and a paragraph on what he's done in your life. Because I promise you, the moments I find myself in the region of the 10 towns, I don't have language to give it. So what I do is I default to the moralistic, I default to the materialistic, I default to the emotional change. Even leaving here today, one of the single best things you can do in life is write a paragraph of who Jesus is to you and a paragraph on what he's done in your life. Because as you start to learn the language of that, the moments you find yourself in the region of the 10 towns, we're not flailing and we're not defaulting to a recipe that only leaves Jesus looking like a mix between Superman and Santa Claus. The power of proximity. The second lesson I want to share with you this morning, it sounds simple, but it's to love God and to love people. It was only a couple of days later that I found myself again talking with Ozod about life, purpose, faith, and all of the things of the world. And he says to me, Mike, did Saul love God? Once again, I was flailing for an answer and Ozod said to me, well, Mike, Saul loved God. In fact, he was an expert in the law. He was devoted to God and post-transformation, Paul himself says in Philippians 3 that he demanded the strictest of obedience to the Jewish law, a Hebrew, if there ever was one. Ozod says, so Mike, in that case, what happened on the Damascus Road? Man, what a beautiful question. Ozod paused and with a warm and genuine tone says to me, well Mike, on the Damascus Road, Saul learned to love people. In the West, 
He said, you either do one or the other. You're either all about the law and the restrictions it brings, or you're all about loving people, but with nothing of consequence and nothing of authentic faith. He says, it can't be one or the other. It must be both. You must love God and you must love people. As we're sitting in a church, Ozod calls to his eight-year-old grandson. He brings him out and stands him in front of me and he says, Mike, watch this. He says to this eight-year-old boy, hey, can you tell Mike what you love about the Bible? And he starts to give this beautiful answer. Ozod then says, hey, can you list every book from Genesis to Revelation in order? Remember, it's illegal to teach the gospel to anyone under the age of 16. Genesis to Revelation. He then, then says, can you choose five books from the Old Testament, five from the New Testament, and tell Mike how many chapters are in each? I'm flicking through the contents trying to keep up with the kid, right? <laughs> And then he finishes it by saying, and can, can you tell Mike one thing that everyone should know about Jesus? And he says, yeah, his humbleness. Yeah. Not his pride or position, but his humbleness. And he says, if everyone lived that way, it would be really cool. <laughs> An eight-year-old boy in a country where it's illegal to teach the gospel to anyone under the age of 16. I promise you, it's not a placeholding ministry. It's a theological training school. And for me, this was a perfect example of a love for God and people, but not from the eight-year-old boy, from Ozod. Why? Because here's a man who's in his 70s. Every single room he walks into, the room will rise and stand in honour of his presence. We're four hours away from the city that he lives in. We walk into another secret underground church, and once again, as always the case, the room rises out of respect and honour. I follow him across the room and Ozod makes a beeline for the youngest kid in the room. He walks over to him, gives him a customary Central Asian greeting, two-handed shake, kiss on the forehead, an honouring sort of position to a child from a 70-year-old. Ozod stops and turns to me and says, Mike, this is my dear friend. We study the Bible together. You talk about a love for God and a love for people from a man that the world respects and honours. What a beautiful picture of both. As the band come back, comes back and joins me on the stage and we begin to finish the morning, it reminds me of a letter that I read from a Rwandan pastor. He was killed for his faith in 1980 where his tribe said, you can either renounce Christ or be killed. The night before his death, he penned a letter called The Fellowship of the Unashamed, a handwritten copy of which was given to a dear friend of mine. It's a letter that's saturated in purpose and a christ focused life and I want to read it to you this morning it says I'm part of the fellowship of the unashamed the die has been cast I have stepped over the line the decision has been made I'm a disciple of his and I won't look back let up slow down back away or be still my past is redeemed my present makes sense my future is secure I'm done and finished with low living, sight walking, small planning, smooth knees, colourless dreams, tamed visions, mundane talking, cheap living and dwarf goals. I no longer need preeminence, prosperity, position, promotions, plaudits or popularity. I don't have to be right or first or tops or recognised or praised or rewarded. I live by faith. I lean on His presence, I walk by patience, I lift by prayer, and I labour by Holy Spirit power. 
He said, my face is set, my gate is fast, and my goal is heaven. My road, it may be narrow, my way rough, my companions few, but he says, my guide is reliable and my purpose is clear. I will not be bought, compromised, detoured, lured away, turned back, deluded or delayed. I will not flinch in the face of sacrifice or hesitate in the presence of the adversary. I will not negotiate at the table of the enemy, ponder at the pool of popularity or meander in the maze of mediocrity. He said, I won't give up, shut up or let up until I have stayed up, stored up, prayed up, paid up and preached up for the cause of Christ because I am a disciple of Jesus. He says, I must give until I drop, preach until all know, and work until he comes, and when he does come for his own, he'll have no problems recognising me, because my colours will be clear, and my purpose complete. Now that is a purposeful, Christ-focused life. Don't ever underestimate the value that you have in nurturing faith and purpose in those you're called to lead. I believe that God has a purpose and a plan for each and every one of our lives. And more than that, it's the journey that makes us great. We all need to be courageous enough to listen to His voice in our lives, but humble enough to act on it. And before we finish today, I want to take a minute to call out two groups of people specifically. First of all, I want to speak to the women in the room. Because your role as spiritual co-founders within family, church and society, it's undeniable, but often underappreciated in Western cultures. If I look over the Middle East in the last seven or eight years, I've seen all but a generation of men wiped out in Iraq and Syria. And so where does the spiritual legacy of that nation fall? Man, it falls onto the shoulders of women. Mothers, grandmothers, daughters. Do not ever underestimate the value and the role you play in nurturing a Christ-centered, God-given purpose in those around you. Because even me, the only reason I'm here is because a destitute woman chose love over fear and dropped me off at an orphanage. Because a nurse who wasn't even a Christian chose to smuggle me across a border and choose love over fear and bribe some nuns. Because a woman in Australia chose to let go of materialism and comfort by accepting another child into her family to raise as her own. And because two beautiful sisters chose to embrace me as their brother and help write God's purpose into my life. Don't ever let society and culture tell you that as women, you don't have a role in helping people reach their God-given purpose. And the second group I want to speak to today is anyone over the age of 50, but particularly the men. Because have you ever realised that faith, it is the only thing that grows stronger with age? Think about it. We downsize our house, our income drops, our health drops. The only thing that bucks that trend is faith. It should only ever grow stronger and burn brighter the further you get in life. But when I look around society and culture, and I'm victim of this too, is that too often my spiritual worth is tied up in my vocation. And so the moment it looks at life changing, what do we do? We question our purpose. 
And so if that's you today and you fall into that category, don't ever link your vocation to your spiritual worth. Because your purpose in God is only just beginning. Ozod, he didn't come to faith till he was 55. It's not a time that you take your foot off. It's a time that you press in and you realize that the years of living out your faith are only becoming more exciting. The power of proximity, your story, it has the most powerful power to those who know you best. A love for God and a love for people because it can never be one or the other. It must be both. And purpose, although it may be manifest in the great moments, it is built in the small ones. Let me pray for us. Father, we come before you this morning and we thank you for the great privilege it is to know you and be in relationship with you. We thank you for the great honour of sending your son to die for us so that we might have right standing and union with you. And today, Lord, I pray that we would leave here more courageous, more bold and more passionate than ever before about our relationship with you, knowing that our life story has been written for a purpose. Lord, give us wisdom, give us clarity, give us the words that we need to share our story in the region of the 10 towns. Lord, give us the courage to listen and the humility to act. For you are great God. You are one true God. And we pray all this in the wonderful name of Jesus. Amen. Hey, thanks for listening to the Bright Weekly Podcast. We hope you're encouraged today and we'd love to see you at one of our services. So to connect further with us, head over to brightchurch.com.